I'm Justin Race, the CEO and co-founder of Watchbox. I'm panicked about the snow bomb blizzard, which is about to hit the northeast. Howard, you're alive. I am alive and kicking. What a sound booth! I can I can hear I can hear everything, but nothing. How did how did you do that with eggshells, Nerf padding on the wall? I figured you know in the state that you come in once in a while, a padded room would be a good thing. The MacGyver of audio. That's what you are. Well, thank you. Today, speaking of Nerf, no no segue there. I am like. <laughs> Coming up, coming up with no segue, except we have the smooth stylings, his second time guest, because I'm fascinated, as you know, Canute by watches. And last June, we had my friend Justin from Watchbox on, and uh, I'm going to have people go back and listen to it because it was just a great interview about all things watches and collectibles and the business of Watchbox. And now here we are in January of uh, 22. Is it 2022? I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. And the balloons and the parties, the crypto parties of 2021 and the GameStop parties and everybody's going to get rich and Reddit uh, is kind of over. The meme economy that I joyfully encourage and uh, support and have had fun with and believe in is, uh, is hitting a new phase. I call it more. The memes will go on, but investors will get wiser, hopefully, and smarter and the memes will, you know revert back to some maybe some fundamental memes. And so in a world where 2022 where energy is the best performing asset and that bores the hell out of me and, and we'll get Alan Sure back on to talk about energy. Last time I had him on, the oil was negative. Um, what I'd like to, to get Justin back on is talk about the collectible market, uh, the alternative market, uh, bonds. You know, he's a macro guy, but also has built a, a huge business. You know, when we talked to him last June, the company had just raised some money at full disclosure. Social Leverage is an investor in the company through an, a single-purpose vehicle. It's not a, a fund investment. It was for our LPs that we put together. So we have been rooting Justin on something. We do at Social Leverage now when we see larger companies, growth companies, you know, we want to also be able to invest, uh, not through our fund. We, we share it with our LPs. So this is a fun brand growing really fast in a space that I love watches. So uh, should we get Justin on the phone, Canute? Let's do it. Justin! Hey, Howard. Good to speak to you. Good to speak to you, buddy. So you're panicked about a snowstorm. Yeah, I mean, it's something unusual for us over here because um, having lived in Asia all my life, I've never had to worry about, you know, these big white clouds coming across and dumping, you know, three feet of snow on your front lawn. So... uh, Today I'm in the office and I may be stuck here for the next 72 hours. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of why I moved. Knut, you grew up with the snow. Any I did. tips? Any tips? Yeah, just stay out of it. Wow, Knut, insightful. Dude, there's, there's a reason I moved to Arizona, man. Yeah, man. Justin, I think Watchbox should have a little little office here in Phoenix. Where we've talked about that. We're looking at some stuff. Mm-hmm. So catch people up. When I when we last chatted, like I said, everything was going up and to the right no matter what it was, except rates were going down. 
now all of a sudden, here we are in 2022. The Fed and the government is focused on inflation. That's the narrative. And inflation has been good for assets like yourselves and the stocks because uh, prices go up. So, so let's talk about the macro environment and how that's different than 2021 and how that affects alts and watches. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I know, but we have time. It's a podcast. <laughs> no one's watching. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for both of us being in the market for so many years and, you know, really have gone through various ups and downs and, you know, financial crises, it's sometimes, you know, in a, in a perverse sort of way, kind of refreshing to see a correction in the market. Um, you know, when we've, it's for as traders, and that was my first um, part of my career when I was trading credit and fixed income, you know, it's always easier to trade momentum as opposed to volatility. And when you see directional changes, those are often the things where most traders and hedge funds make their most money. Um, you know, 2021, when we, we last caught up, you know, it was a phenomenal year for us. You know, I think we outperformed our our forecast and budget by 30%. We grew over 40% year on year last year. And, you know, I think we were very fortunate because we had this macro backdrop where not only were all the financial and fiscal forces pointing to a lot of liquidity in the market, but in general, we had this trend on thematic around collectibles. And that theme, you know, that we often talk about, you and I, Howard, you know, we both believe in will continue. And this whole idea around investing in alternative assets outside of just traditional financial instruments is something that we believe will continue. But I think what's interesting and, you know, what we should discuss is as this market changes, where does the consumer go and what type of consumer is out there and what does that mean with these, you know, changes in market conditions, especially with this, you know, with some of the air coming out of the crypto market, you know, does that dissuade some early movers into this space? Does it mean that they go into other categories or do they leave this party altogether? So I think there's, some, there's a lot of interesting things happening in this market. And there's a lot of people or participants that we both know have come in and have never experienced this type of dynamic going up and down so quickly. So this is something really interesting to me in observing you know, how they participate and how they play. You know, with the watch business itself for us in 2021, you know, we've always built our business around understanding who our consumer is and trying to figure out how they participate and how they behave. What we've noticed with the high, you know, our business is predominantly focused on a higher price point. So our average selling price on our platform is north of $20,000. So these are traditionally customers of ours that have, you know, been in the professional career of obviously, you know, reasonable net worth to be able to participate and own and collect a $20,000 timepiece. That's not to say that, you know, the earlier, younger demographic is not playing. In fact, that's probably where the largest part of our emerging consumer is growing today. But what we also based our theory is, is that when you look at these big macro swings in the market, we always try to understand where the volatility is from the demand side and whether or not the customer leaves or runs away. And one of the things about watches is there's many different things that we have on our personal balance sheet. We may have a car, we may have a house, we may have, you know, the mortgage. But the one thing that, you know, we as consumers have, you know, the watch itself is probably the last thing that you have to sell if things do go down in a, in a macro environment. And what that means for us in the category and the vertical we're in, 
is you don't have like this massive exodus of watches coming to market just because there's a swing. In fact, it's, if anything, there's more stability and there's less liquidity that happens potentially on the sell side. But still, as long as there's activity going on in the marketplace, we don't see the same volatility in this category as you would see in other things. Really good summary. I appreciate that because here's what I see. And again, we're talking about the 10 percenters, or let's even say the 1 percent. It's not our fault. That's just the business that we happen to be in. And so I don't want to wax poetic about stuff I don't understand. I feel like I do understand, maybe not the 1%, but the 10%, the strivers that want to be in the 1%. I don't know what to call those people. Canute, I'm making it up. Justin, is there a term for that in the real world that you've heard of? Not, like, have you guys bucketed this type of person? Not really. And I think we try to stay away from that um, because we, we want... That's why I'm not a head of marketing, <laughs> is what you're saying. It, it's it's <laughs> true. I mean, it, it, because it, I'm it, an asshole. It's a, it's a wider community and, 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 you, and there's, everyone that falls into that bucket comes from all shapes and forms today in, in, in this global... True, because you can be second year enterprise sales and want a Rolex. So, so in this world that I see, what interested me in watches when I was young and didn't have money was, okay, it was a, a sense of accomplishment. You know, if you couldn't get a car, you got a watch. And now um, what interested me about alternatives in my old age is I don't really like the stock market because it's not where I made all my living. I made it in the private markets. And I look at the stock market and I just think about the Fed and I'm like, I'm just basically, you know, just index and, and go with the Fed. It's like, uh, versus the private markets where you just said not everybody runs to the exit, the the first 10% drop in the S&P, and you know, I don't have to hear all the noise, meaning I own a, a brand and a, and a, and a product that uh, has a market. And now technology and, and companies like yourself bring liquidity to that market. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you know, what you've just mentioned is, you know, when you bought your first Rolex and it was a sense of accomplishment, in some ways, when you imparted three, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, whatever it cost back then, you yeah. know, in, in your own mind, there was a store of value of when you purchased that because you did believe that you bought this, you bought this timepiece, you bought your Rolex, but it was worth something to you and to others. So I think that's something that, you know, is really interesting today is that these items, and we talk about meme stocks, but I think also people undervalue brands in general and using them as a store of value. Rolex, and it just came to my mind, is that Rolex itself is probably one of the most valuable brand equities you'll come across today. You can't invest in the company, but you can buy the watch. But provided that you're able to take possession of a Rolex, you know, what better way to store value if you know that that guardian of that brand value is one of the wealthiest companies in the world? And they're always going to be maintaining their brand. They're always going to mm. be increasing the price year on year. And in some ways, it's, it is a financial instrument. And, uh, you know, we use the word brand equity lightly, but I think brand equity is actually in its true form, uh, you know, something that you can invest in. That's a really interesting set because they're not in the paper every day and they don't have to do quarterly earnings and no one's getting outed. And even if they are getting outed, it's not a public company, so everything dies down. And I guess the public version of that at some level is the high end of Nike shoes, but more LVMH. Mm -hmm. um, but it's probably harder to pull out. That's why LVMH is so interesting because they did it at a public level. But when they anoint a brand by buying it, um, that says something. And they have figured out to be the platform for anointing brands for the up-and-comers or the, or the strivers of the 
you went out and raised a huge round since we last chatted, and, and it involved a lot of athletes. Tell me how you were thinking about athletes and influencers and this business. Now they have a lot of capital. Um, you know, how is the business changing going forward now that you have the capital to, to do what you want? So the, the objective of the capital raise was to allow us to expand and invest more in technology, open more locations around the world, and really invest in people and build our, our, our brand awareness. The whole initiative about bringing in some of the personalities that you would have seen that participated in the round was specifically not to build and have a pay-to-play audience. It was really to build authentic relationships with investors that really believed in the category and the vertical. And many of the participants, and you know, we had a lot of NBA players and guys from the NFL, these guys were all customers of ours and really enjoyed and you know, they know our teams around the world and have been long-term um, partners. And when we came to um, this junction, just like how we came together, it was a really um, authentic you know, strategy of let's build the profile and build the brand. Watchbox isn't well known across the world and we're, every day we you know, add new customers to our platform and we have a true belief that if we can build trust, because we are dealing in high value goods, you know, trust is the biggest barrier to entry into this business at scale. You know, the three of us on this call today could set up a, a watch dealing platform, but we would never be able to scale it to the extent we'd want to go unless we had the brand and the trust that we could speak to a much larger audience globally. So, you know, by having some of the participants and the brand personalities, it really is the guilty by association card that we're playing where people get to know who we are. They get to know, yes, Michael Jordan invested and Yanis invested. And that really, you know, speaks to volumes when you're dealing in a society in the U.S., which I've learned now the sports culture is so big. You know, what better way to really command and, you know, broadcast your brand over a much more, you know, active audience than sports. So, you know, we've, we, we ex- exerted that strategy. We, we, you know, we closed our fundraising at the end of last year. And I think what you'll see for us in our brand this year is to get a lot closer to our customer audience and really build those localized communities. Like you mentioned in Arizona, you know, I totally believe that we could open up a a Watchbox community over there, a community in LA, a community in Miami. And what you'll see of our business, you know, coming out of the pandemic is really bringing those communities to life because they actually already exist. They just have nowhere to go. (laughs) So as you'll see them online at Reddit or forums, this is an opportunity to really activate, sponsor, and bring these collectors together. And I think that is something we're really excited about um, here in the U.S. and and globally. And yeah, 160 employees now. How how fast have you grown since then? Like how and how has hiring been? Like for other founders out there, like what I know, we talk about that all the time. You and I, it's just hard to find people. What where are you finding? Today, we're probably closer to 250 employees now. Um, We've grown significantly, and the reason being where a lot of those headcount comes from is to open up locations um, around the country. Um, hiring people in this category is all about passion. We're in the passion vertical and people that love and enjoy, you know, in, in watches or collectibles, you know, we're really an exciting business for people to join on this journey. And, um, the hardest thing is we've had to get to t- grips with it is building, um, and hiring remote. We have, um, our employees here in the United States all across the country. Um, we have people working on the West coast that are three hours behind us over here. And it, it's basically adjusting and, and adjusting the mindset that you can have a very dispersed organization, and which is why we've had to really double down and invest in culture 
and getting people much more connected, you know, with our vision and with our growth strategy. We were kind of dealt this card, these cards before we started the business growth here in the United States during the pandemic, because we have global locations around the world. You know, I have cameras and video monitors that look into every country office, and then you can build connectivity online and through Zoom, but we were already trained to behave that way. So expanding that strategy here in the US was just a natural, um, you know, adjunct to what we were doing already. And so now we come out of COVID, we kind of got like the model of pop-up meets high-end retail meets, obviously you're an online business and you have all this data that you've created around the watch industry. Catch me up on how retail mixes with online here in the future now that we have another seven months of COVID under our belt. So how does, how does that work to you now that we're closer to a world that opens up? Because seven months ago, we had a vision of it. Now it's, you know, the world feels just a little bit shittier in general. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just got yeah. that little extra bit of, eh, like, I know I should be out, but I'm not even, like, everything's kind of, eh. So how does retail look to you now? It's interesting when you look at the consumer and, you know, owning different types of consumer businesses, you're always trying to think about when that next customer or that same customer is going to make their next purchase. And when you think around collecting and the consumer behavior, and really zeroing in on knowing thy customer, I think the future of retail is really understanding the customer better, understanding how they behave, and understanding the value of community. And what I mean by that is the value of community is really about building retention and building loyalty and expecting to have that customer behave in a, such a way that even if they don't do a transaction, they're still in your network and you're not having to think about the traditional e-commerce or running a retail store where you're always looking to spend to acquire that next customer. In fact, you're spending more time engaging the customer, providing better service and keeping them retained into your captive net. When we look at our business and how it changes, we're not opening up locations to sell watches through brick and mortar facilities. It's really about customer capture and bringing them to a place or what we like to call a home or a clubhouse where they get to spend more time around our brand, around our community, and really get to meet our people. You know, I've always thought that technology sometimes changes at too fast a pace, and we need to figure out ways to pull up the handbrake and slow down that experience, because we're, we're in the game of dealing in an emotional purchases. You know, when you're spending $25,000 on a timepiece, you know, you do want to go through um, a, an experience where you're not rushed, you know, you, there's a bit of romance to falling in love with that timepiece that you want so much. And I think we're in an interesting category where by really understanding our customer, you know, we're, we're, we're a business that's heavily, heavily, heavily invested in Salesforce. And what that's allowed us to do, and this is not to plug Salesforce alone, but it's really allowed us to get a 360 degree view on Howard Lindsden and what he owns, what he likes, you know, what is on his wish list. When he comes and speaks to us and what we know about his buying behavior, you know, we want to get in front of you and know exactly when your next purchase is going to be. We want to know exactly what, you know, interests you have. And retail in the future is getting really smart about positioning your service, your product to a personal level to that customer. We may touch you in a variety of ways. It may be through our mobile app. It may be through our, our YouTube videos. It may be through our website. It may be through our events. But what we need to know is exactly what Howard Lindsay needs to basically enjoy that long-term journey. And I think what happens with many luxury brands today is that they have this loyal family of collectors or customers, 
but they're still trying to figure out how they bring them into that community aspect. And I think that's my, my, my prediction in the next 24 months is that brands are going to get smart using technology, who knows, NFTs or crypto, but really f- trying to figure out a way of building that moat around that community so that they stay much closer to the brand and have a much more transparent relationship with them. And that's what's going to add a lot of value to platforms and brands in the future is being able to keep that membership type relationship so tight that you do know that customer and they don't go elsewhere. And then, you know, when we're looking at these funny markets right now where you've got incredibly high growth and very little free cash flow and EBIT does, here's an opportunity to, you know, take some of that marketing spend, internalize it and keep your customers close. You know, Soho, I call the center of this future world. It always has been, but like Soho's a tipping point place. You know, for retail, it's been the tipping point place for two or three years, whether it was all birds or pop-up stores. And what a better place to go from online to physical than Soho, because it's international. People come through New York, obviously COVID was terrible and could have gone either way. But, you know, if Soho dies, that's a terrible thing for the world because it's a place where people on the weekends from all over the world go to shop, okay? And the prices in real estate were getting way too expensive. And yeah, sure enough, natural disaster, uh, Soho was the center of riots. And the aftermath of that, um, the faster these new brands move into Soho and show themselves... Um, and we're seeing LVMH buy brands there now that are like fashion brands. And you see Kith show up and Rally Roads there. Um, this this interesting crossover of being able to connect with your user, whereas, you know, for, for me, it's a brand called Rafa, where I was shopping online and I mean, so on, I discover a store and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> they have a store. And, you know, it kind of connected me to the whole brand in a different way. You know, I, I still prefer now to buy the stuff online, but it's always nice to know community-wise that if I, if I want to see like-minded people who spend on cycling in the same category as me, it's kind of my community, right? Like, and I know there's a Rafa store in a city. I'm going to go there, you know? And is that the way you're looking at it as well? I think you're absolutely right. When you look at that example you know, you've just gone to a, um, a brand because, you know, you like cycling, it's your church. This is where you're going to go and meet other like-minded people. And this is where brands today, I think, need to figure out how to monetize that community, not just from a, um, a monetary standpoint, but how do you bring them closer? Uh, I'll give you another example. I, I recently bought a car and I, and I used an insurance company called Haggerty. And I think I mentioned to you the other day. On yeah, a, they on just take. went public. They just went public. It's, yeah. not, it's not a terribly large company. But what right. was really interesting is that they connected me as a consumer that's just um, insured a car. The car now, um, you know, it's, it's my mode of transport, but all of a sudden they've recognized that I like cars and they're, they're sending me information. I'm invited to drive meetups. No different to how Rafa could basically invite you to go for a cycle trip with other people in that community in Soho. And I think that's where there's an incredible opportunity. If you and I went out and bought a brand tomorrow and they had a million customers or followers in their social media or in their CRM, imagine what we could do by creating that now connection and community, not just selling them product and promoting sales, but really involving that social element that 
you've seen, you know, transpire from what you've seen in uh, the Board Ape Yacht Club today, like turning those communities into active um, communities. I think there's an incredible opportunity there. The unlock is insane. So I can go into Rafa and the kid working there maybe can or can't afford it, but he still respects me because I love cycling and I like culture and style. I may not be the best cyclist, but I'm just so passionate about this sport. And I've often thought about this, you know, and again, it's easy for me to be an armchair. I'm not a CEO of anything except this podcast, and, and I don't even know how to fire anybody because Knut wouldn't have been here for the last six months. <laughs> the, so I don't know what I'm doing. So let's just be clear. But I have a lot of strong opinions about this because I shop, and I'm very particular about how I shop. So, you know, when I go to Rafa, it feels like home. And, you know, maybe I would change some things. And then, you know, I see the way Robert Riley Road and team is rolling out that brand like a supreme of collectibles. And then I meet you at Watchbox and I'm like, finally, because when I go to like a, this goes to the world of shittier. And I, and, and I say that from the, go watch Aziz Ansari's just did a half an hour Netflix special where he sat down at the comedy store with just fresh material. And it was great. And he was right. He was like, the world's just a little shittier because we treated everybody like shit, right? Like mm-hmm. that, the wait staff, like we just took everything for granted. And now when you go to, you can't get service. And you thought it was bad, but it was really funny, but it was right on point in the sense that we're just shitty. And so of course the world's just a little shittier. And all the brands that did survive at retail are really shitty because they're still in the, especially in the watch industry, a Turno store or a Swiss store. It's like, you know, everybody's unhappy. You still feel like you're getting ripped off. The gig is up. The internet's there. Your friend knows a friend. And so someone's got to rebuild the whole thing. And it has to start on the internet first. And now someone's got to go rebuild everything from the inside out. So are you excited about that? Or is it just like, there's no there's no way to go fast. So how are you thinking about like speed? And, and there's so much open space too. So how do you like think about that? This, there is there is so much to do, and, and you have to pause and take a breather when you look at you know everything you've just mentioned. Because as long as the underlying trend is in place, um, you know, and I think Howard, you and I both macro investors, when you think about as long as the trend's intact and we see the upward trend, and I know that for example in our category the communities are there, and it's easy for me to be altruistic and say, hey, I'm going to open up um, locations around the world and build these communities. But they won't come unless they believe us and they're authentic, they see us as an authentic connection around what we do and what we focus on, which is, you know, collecting watches and collecting together with our, with our collectors. So, you know, what's exciting for me is really laying the roadmap of being able to catalyze these communities. Our first, um, our next three locations are in L.A., Miami and also in New York. And by bringing people together, bring the events, you know, I always believe that the reason why communities are important is that, especially when it comes to brands, is that if you and I met through the Rafa community and we build a relationship and we go cycling together, that Rafa brand will always be a part of us. You know, we're always going to be loyal to that brand. And I think very similarly around the community, when we bring our watch collecting community together and they meet by virtue of Watchbox because they came to a meetup in Arizona and they had a fun time and everyone got to exchange their watch collecting stories and they maybe bought or sold something with us. Those are things in our, in our psychology that will always remember and will always bring us back to that place where we had that moment and we introduced ourselves to that person. 
So I think what we're doing here in our strategy is really trying to think differently around traditional um, you know, retail. We're not a retail business per se because we are a platform and we open our platform to a very large community globally. But imagine that every single person that's part of this community is connected in some shape or form with another member all around the other side of the world. And that to me is where it gets really exciting is like bringing those communities and unearthing them. That's a big opportunity. It's also a lot of work. But provided that they're there, we're going to be opening this hub and spoke model and always just you know, opening in new locations and bringing them back to us. And it's really exciting because you know, our, our business is not about just like selling you know, high-end watches. It's providing access, making the whole journey fun collecting you know bicycles or you know briefcases or guns or uh, you know uh, vintage cars for example it's not fun if you can't share that passion and so what we need to do as a company is to always make that sense of enjoyment because these are very different from your traditional e-commerce companies which are very much a one and done business you know we're building lifetime value and life journeys which could expand 15 to 20 years and provided they have enjoyment, you know, our customers will never leave us. They'll do this until they die, <laughs> until they die. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think it's all about how do you create that enjoyment and fun and bring them into that community and the rest of the business will take care of itself. Yeah. I, th- I, I say if I could work for two companies right now, again, I don't want to work at a startup. I'm now like 56, so I'm, I'm fragile. So I'm thinking about my time. And I have a lot of projects on my mind. You and I chat about that just once in a while over Chinese. But this would be the company that I work for. Uh, the only other company is Angelus. And I tell Lev Locke, who I've got to get on the podcast, uh, who's CEO there now. Uh, it's just so much open field. Like, I want to work at, at businesses that have open field because there's no rules right now. Mm-hmm. So you laid out a great framework. What is the TAM? Because I think this can be a public company just like Allo can be a public company, just like theoretically Rafa could be a public company because it's a community and culture and they could do roll-ups. There's all kinds of open field. And six months ago, I would have said, you know, open in Midtown. Now I'd say watch shops would be crazy not to be in Soho and have like, you know, different parts of the shop, just like Radley Road is doing. So how big is the TAM? The TAM um, of this, well, the size of the primary and secondary market, you know, in 2025, it's about $100 billion. You know, that's effectively what we believe primary inventory that's being sold. So this is brand new inventory and what they call secondary, which is effectively inventory that's been you know, sold in previous years that's being sold and traded in that market. So 100 billion, you know, I still think that's rather conservative because the amount of inventory that's in this world today, because these watches, they're built to last 100 years. They don't, no one throws out a Rolex. So, you know, when they made it 30 years ago, it's still you know, in, in the monetary supply, so to speak, in the world. So when you think about, you know, this trillion dollars of inventory, which is probably what it's worth today in the market, that's out there and it's available to sell. Now, if you think about the size of the TAM, it's going to be a factor of, you know, consumers willing to buy um, a, a collectible or pre and watch. So as more collectors or more customers come into this audience and accept the idea about buying and selling a watch, it'll unearth more of this inventory into the market because more people will be willing to monetize it, sell it, trade it for another watch. So I think, you know, the TAM, you know, as we look out for the next 10 years, you know, we could be looking at something well over $100 billion per annum. Now, Watchbox itself, 
you know, we're certainly one of the largest players in the, in the ecosystem, but by no means are we, you know, close to 1% of that. Um, you know, we, we hope to be close to a half a billion dollar business, you know, in a very short period of time. Um, we're well over 300 million as of last year. But imagine, you know, as you grow and open up these communities and networks, you'll see as our brand acceptance and we build trust, no different to how JP Morgan's built their brand. The minute you open into these new communities and they understand and they know you, and there's momentum as you get more locations around the world, I think, you know, the opportunity is very, very significant for us to, you know, to really drive those numbers north. Okay, so we've summed everything up. I want to ask a few questions for our audience, for people that are thinking about entry level, their first watcher, a parent uh, or a VC listening to the show, or a successful investor, or somebody who just wants to do something nice for somebody else, their wife, a friend, a student, or a young person with their first YOLO trade that has up to $10,000 to spend on a watch, used or new. What does Justin say? I know what I would tell somebody, but what do you say to that parent or kid looking? They don't need to make money, but they just want to know. They want to be scared that they don't lose it. They want to be scared that it's not stolen. They may or may not want to insure it. What do they do? I think you and I would probably say the same response to this, knowing that I know you like watches, is Rolex, Rolex, Rolex. I mean, it's one of these brands which produces a lot of watches each year. They produce almost a million watches into the market. But it's also probably one of the most well-established, well-known brands that anyone will give it a, a store of value. I think if it's your first watch or you're looking to spend $10,000, you really want to make sure that you're getting into a brand that if for whatever reason, especially if in the your example of a, a young student that just got their first gift, they could turn it into cash in a relatively short period of time. And by virtue of everyone knowing who Rolex is, I would definitely steer them in that brand direction. But in terms of model reference, you know, when you look at the model families and, you know, I, I, I certainly recommend going to the Rolex website and learning about the different model mm. families that are around, you know, the, the Submariner, the GMT, you know, these are, you know, effectively their core brand uh, model families that everyone is familiar with. You know, I would steer them into one of those timepieces because they have been around forever. They're constantly evolving them. But even so, Rolex themselves they raise the price of their models almost every year. So it costs more in two years' time to buy that same watch than it does today. Maybe not in real terms, and especially with what we've been going through the last few years, but it's certainly one of these um, models where I would you know, be happy to give my son or give, you know, to congratulate someone if I was to buy a present, that I know that that watch, whilst they really will enjoy it, and it's something that will mean a lot to them, it's something that they could also sell if for whatever reason disaster was upon them and they needed to turn it into cash. Fantastic. Now, for me, I have a Rolex. Don't give away my home address because uh, it's out on the table right now. I didn't put it in the safe. Oh, I don't have a safe. Why am I giving away all this information about myself? And my social <laughs> security number, Canute? 527-425. You guys can figure out the other digits. This is a LifeLock commercial. So for Howard, you know, a guy who has everything, mm -hmm. you know, when you go public and you say, you know, Howard had me on his podcast a few times, giving me all this free, terrible brand advice. I want to show Howard that I'm not cheap. I want to get him a gift that he'll remember. What, what is that gift above 10,000? No, Canute, you have, you get a, a, a swatch. They're still in business. <laughs> you get you a swatch. But Justin, what, what is the gift for someone who, do, who has it all? 
I mean, for the person that has it all, it's really yeah. about. Because I have it all, I except it, uh, my prostate. I don't have a prostate, but it, got everything else. It would certainly be. Uh, it would be. I'd choose an independent brand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a couple of brands that come to mind that I really really like. Um, um, that produce you know less than 300 timepieces a year. And these these are very special because they're made by hand, by and large. Some of them, you know, have automation. But each year, two to three hundred timepieces get produced from a very small factory, where the ratio of of um, factory employees to watches are almost one to one. And these are very special timepieces. They, I, I certainly think, in this day and age, they they they're having their day in the sun because people are now recognizing artisanal you know, watchmaking, and that's a very rare, uh, you know, industry in terms of it will never scale to a large extent. It's very unique, and it, it's basically the sum, it's the it's a brand that not anyone can access. You really have to be on their waiting list, or you have to know someone at the factory to be able to get access. The brands I like, um, a brand which we're very close to, is called De Batune, um, huh. and that's D-E-B-E-T-H-U-N-E. Um, okay. they 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 produce 190 watches, maybe 230 watches this year, um, and the price point's somewhat higher. It's about a hundred thousand dollars there, but they're very unique. And the watchmaker is one of the best living watchmakers out there today. And you know, when you when you turn 50 or 60 in 10 years' time, Howard, I'll probably get you one of those. <laughs> All right. Well, this is taped, so you're fucked. Okay. Now, <laughs> I, I've so I'm looking. I'm on the Instagram page right now, sending you links. <laughs> the uh, yeah, because I already got a restaurant. We talked about it last time. Okay. So this is great advice for young people. Insurance. How how do you feel about that? When should someone insure this? And should people? I've heard, like, I got scared the other day. Someone said, "Don't wear your Rolex. So someone will tear it." Like, I didn't know the world was that dangerous again. But uh, I don't want to live in that world because why have nice things if you can't? I'm not look. I just want to enjoy them. So I don't want them to be in a safe. So how should people protect their watches in today's day and age? There's a variety of platforms that provide insurance specifically for watches. Um, I mean, if you come to Watchbox, we'll insure your watch. Oh, so you'll do it. Great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and but it, it's you know I'm I'm a little bit like you. I'm a little bit laissez-faire about how I treat my belongings. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of always half glass full as opposed to thinking about doomsday so but definitely come to us and we'll, we'll be able to um, introduce you to our insurance product and uh, we can do buckle to buckle we can also make sure every year your watch comes back and it has a polish and it's put in good condition so there's ancillary services which you know if you especially into horology you know it's a great and it's it's very affordable Do you want to build a public company? I go back and forth on it, um, Howard. You know, especially when you see the volatility that we see in yeah. these markets. Is you know, I, I my my job in the position that I am is to just really just forward execute on the vision that we have and grow the company. You know, if I have to spend thirty percent of my time running a public communications channel and taking that valuable time away from growing. You know, you have to, you know, juggle the priorities up and decide, you know, what are you going public for and what's the reason? The only real reason for me today to go public is if it helps me accelerate brand awareness because my community are the same people that would possibly, you know, buy and sell up my stock, then I could see a lot of value there. But for now, you know, and, and certainly for the next year, you know, our focus is really just execute on growth and not get distracted by things that are not core to our, our business plan. All right, you did great. 
How, how good of an investor am I? One to ten. Ten. I mean, by the way, I was going to tell you, and I didn't okay, this have is, now. This is you have as much time as you like. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. But <laughs> I had no idea how. Well we, do we have? Can we, do we have disk space for for bragging about you as much as we need? Okay, clear disk space. <laughs> I mean, it was funny after we did our last podcast. You know, I had no idea the extent and the width of your audience because one of the one of the guys on my um, team came to me and goes, oh, by the way, I didn't know you did that podcast with Howard. And he goes, I said, how did you find out about it? And he goes, oh, my mom listens to uh, Howard and she loves him and she forwarded it to all the family members and I, I got it too. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this audience is wide. Uh, it's not about why. Here's the trick. When I started Wall Strip, yeah. Right. Ticker base. So again, like Twitter had all this and they're only a $30 billion company. So it's, it's a source of like so much aggravation of mine for no reason other than missed opportunity. I just hate seeing companies wreck their brand or, or spoil opportunity. It's, you know, people take it the wrong way. But I'm like, man, when something's teed up and you're not capitalizing on it, it's just like having a kid. You want them to do well. So in, in that world, people don't understand like organic growth right, in the power of community and organic growth in the sense that, um, you know, podcasts are narrow, but, you know, you have employees, you'll send this around to 160 people. There's like, there's tricks to growing audience and, you know, slow is not horrible. And that's the way kind of the blog and podcasting are. The reason podcasts took forever because it's a pain in the ass to do them. But it's so much fun hearing the extended networks that slowly develop. And it's not for everybody. And then you slowly just build your organic community at a very low cost. And I think I think for Watchbox, even podcast advertising would be incredible for that reason. Because your employees take it to their parents and that concentric circle keeps expanding. And you get to tell the story the way you want to tell it. Which is why... I think Phil Knight wrote the book. Yeah. It's like, man, the company was losing its way. Like everybody's fighting about what the brand stands for. And he had to remind everybody in his Bible what it stood for. And since he's written that book, the stock's tripled, even though he's not CEO. So I think, you know, that church, that Bible, that passage, that mission statement has to keep getting repeated on the right platform. I think podcasts are the best way to tell stories. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I can't, imagine, can't tell you enough how grateful we are because I think when we have the ability to, you know, have these types of conversations and it extends to a, a, a customer audience that we don't traditionally speak to, you know, they may not be interested in watches, but, you know, I think we have to go through life with a certain, you know, view of kindness to help each other and as we grow the businesses. And I always... You know, um, you know, I was very impressed, having not known many people when I moved to the U.S. two years ago, is when we met, you know, the amount of connectivity you've introduced our world to is is just been phenomenal. And I know through those relationships, other things will happen. And, you know, I want our company, Watchbox, to perform and behave the same way. We may have customers that will never transact with us or, you know, people in our community. But if we go, you know, full step forward, really educate people and tell our story, that ability for the same person to go and retell our story to someone else that may become a customer is always value creation for us. And I still think the same way with what you're doing today and helping so many businesses get their story out. You know, it's the ecosystem that we're all, you know, putting a bit of positive energy into that will really help one another. Yeah, it's just little drops of positive energy. I'm going to go to the Rolex site because you're right. That is a brand that we just take for granted, but it's just magical the way they've done it uh, in a private world. 
All right, my man. I'm glad you're well. Uh, hopefully the storm passes and uh, we'll probably see in New York come, well, come out once the weather improves or come to Phoenix because <laughs> cool. we're looking at locations. So let's come to Phoenix and think about it. Fantastic. We'll look forward to it. And thanks again for your time. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Cheers, Howard. Cheers, good. Thank you, Justin. See ya. K-Nut. Hey. Smooth styling. I know. He knows a lot. Justin is becoming one of my favorites. Right? Like, it was a tough one. Anyways, we put a good team around the table. Uh Not that he's needed our help. And then he's just, he just keeps executing. I think right. LeBron's in there, Michael Jordan, Chris Paul, Booker. Oh. Yeah, he's got all the athletes. He's doing his job. He doesn't need them to do anything. They're going to end up being excited they're involved. All right, you are listening. Uh, were, were people listening, do you think? Yes, okay. I believe they are. You are listening, maybe. Uh, Mom, hello. You are listening to Panic with Friends. Uh, it's really just me. Knute at this point, is phoning it in. <laughs> not paid well. He's part of why the world is shittier. We're just not taking hey. care of our people. No, I need to pay you more. That's right. Okay, delete that. And uh, we come in. at you once a week, me and Canute in a foam room. Hopefully we'll get some more live guests talking to investors, founders, traders, entrepreneurs, uh, trying to get a little bit further ahead, uh, just a couple weeks ahead of the world and uh, be a little bit of positive uh, talk about momentum and growth and uh, investing. So uh, search my name on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or in Google and go to those sites, subscribe, and you'll get an alert once a week when Thursdays when we do this podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.